Well, good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 13. If you're new with us, we welcome you. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we have come to chapter 13. And as we come to this chapter, we are less than 15 hours from the cross. Less than 15 hours from the cross. This is the final evening Jesus would be spending with his disciples before his crucifixion. And needless to say, it would be the most important evening he would spend with them over the course of his earthly ministry. Chapter 13 begins a new section of John's Gospel. Chapters 1 through 12 dealt primarily with Jesus' public ministry to the nation of Israel. Chapters 13 through 17 deal with his private ministry to his disciples as they shared the Passover together. In John chapter 1, as John was introducing his gospel, we read in verses 11 through 12 that he, Jesus, came to his own. That would be a reference to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. And his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. And so in chapters 1 through 12, John focused on Jesus coming to his own, or in other words, his ministry to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And then chapters 13 through 17 deal with him spending time with those who had received him, his disciples. And so once again, guys, by the time we come to chapter 13, we are less than 15 hours from the cross. But more specifically, chapters 13 through 17 cover a six-hour period, roughly from 6 p.m. till midnight. And this was such an important six-hour period that John spends, listen, one quarter of his entire gospel recording it. We're going to get detail from John with regard to the last night in the next day of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, like we don't get anywhere in the other Gospels. He really zooms in on this last part of Jesus' life before the cross, and even after uh, the cross. But um, very important um, this that you realize that, um, again, this scene in chapter 13 begins in the upper room, where Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover and where he is going to give them one last teaching before his crucifixion. Basically, essentially, in John chapters 13 through 17, we have the Lord's farewell message to his closest men. His farewell message to his disciples where he endeavors, listen, to comfort their hearts in the present, but also to prepare their hearts for the future. We'll see that especially when we get to chapter 14. In this final exhortation to his disciples, before his crucifixion, the Lord will be speaking to them, but also exemplifying for them what true greatness in the eyes of God is and how it's manifested in the lives of God's people. In particular, how humility is essential for love and how love is essential for service service to others. We'll see this as we go. 
I have divided chapter 13 using this outline. You can choose your own. It's okay. Uh, this is what I came up with. Uh, Jesus demonstrates true humility, verses 1 to 17. Jesus identifies his betrayer, verses 18 to 30. Jesus unveils a new commandment, verses 31 to 35. And then Jesus prepares Peter for failure in verses 36 to 38. Let's look at the first one this morning. Jesus demonstrates true humility. Verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to, to the end. Now, once again, the occasion for this gathering was to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Understand, this would be the last official Passover the people of God would celebrate together under the Old Covenant. I'm not saying it doesn't still happen. Uh, official, though, okay? This was the last official uh, uh, celebration of Passover that the people of God would celebrate together under the Old Covenant. From this point on, God's people would be, would, uh, would be celebrating a new feast under the new covenant, a new feast together called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Uh, this new feast wasn't to commemorate God delivering His people out of the bondage of Egypt through the blood of lambs, but rather would celebrate God delivering His people from the bondage of sin and death through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Again, verse 1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. We've talked about this, but several times throughout his ministry, we read, My hour has not yet come. And usually that was, in fact, I think it was all the time, when they wanted to take him by force after he fed a bunch of people with a small amount of food or did a miracle, and, and they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And he always said, My hour has not yet come and slipped away into the crowd and was gone. Here we read, his hour had come. Of course, guys, this hour is not a literal 60-minute period of time. It's a figurative hour. It, it describes the events surrounding the crucifixion. Uh, the events were now ready to start like dominoes being tripped. You trip the first one, and there's a rapid succession of events that are going to happen that are going to put Jesus on that cross. So the hour for this to take place has come, all right? And uh, the, the, just so you know, the crucifixion, you don't know this already, please listen, was the ultimate expression of God's love for us. The ultimate expression of God's love for us. Jesus would go on to say, uh, still giving this last discourse to his men. In chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Look, after 4,000 years of human history, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, and then three and a half years of public ministry, finally the hour had come for the completion of our redemption. Jesus had put it this way in chapter 12, verse 24. I'll paraphrase. He said, Unless a grain of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces many grains of wheat, even as my death and resurrection will produce a plentiful harvest of new lives for the kingdom of God. 
John 20, 12, 24. We've talked about that, all right? You see, guys, without the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, well, there could be no spiritual life. There could be no eternal life for anybody. If Jesus hadn't died, wasn't buried, and didn't rise again, he would have remained alone. In other words, he would have been the only member of Adam's descendants to become a child of God. Now, of course, he's the only begotten son of God, right? Uh, he became God's son when he, through the Holy Spirit, was implanted into Mary's womb. That's when conception took place without the help or aid of any human man, right? It was God who placed the seed of God in the womb of Mary, and it, it, uh, was, it was conceived, right? And then nine months later, Jesus was born. But remember what Gabriel said to Mary when he came, gave, the angel Gabriel, when he came to announce that she had been chosen by God the Father to be the mother of Messiah. And she says, how can this be? I know not a man. And she, I've, never, I've, I don't, I've never known a man physically like that. And Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of God will come upon you. And the Holy One that will be implanted in your womb will be called the Son of God. So Jesus was the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. The rest of us are children of God by adoption. All right, by adoption. You know that. But without him going to the cross, dying, and resurrecting, he would have been the only member of Adam's descendants to become a child of God, the only one to live forever in God's kingdom in heaven. If Jesus hadn't died and risen from the grave, every one of Adam's descendants, we're all born of, in, of Adam. In Adam all die, the Bible says, right? Every one of us have been born of Adam, right? If Jesus hadn't died and risen from the grave, every one of Adam's descendants would have had a blood curse remaining upon them. They would have been doomed to spend eternity in hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. If it wasn't for Jesus, what he did on Calvary's cross and three days later stepping from that tomb alive, alive, when we as the sons and daughters of Adam die, we would stay in the grave because death would never have been conquered. Praise God the tomb is empty. And I've been there. I've been in Israel. I have stepped foot, so has my wife. So have many of you. Step foot in that tomb. They believe it is the actual tomb Jesus was buried in. And there's good reason they believe that. Go online, you can check it out. Uh, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Only the tomb of Jesus is empty. The tomb of Muhammad, the tomb of Confucius, the tomb of, of, of Buddha. If you were to go to those places today, their bones are still in that tomb. It's only the tomb in Jerusalem, outside the walls, that is empty. Because Jesus is risen. Amen. So the hour had come for the love of God for this fallen, sinful world to be openly demonstrated for all to see. And again, guys, the cross was the ultimate proof for all time of God's great love for mankind. One of my favorite verses on the subject is Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a very important uh, statement. While we were still sinners. Jesus didn't die for those that were, you know, already his people. 
He died for outcasts, for rebels, for those that were uh, determined to live their own life, do their own thing. He died for rebels because he loves rebels. He loves people that live contrary to his commandments. Uh, not that he loves that they do that, but he just loves them in spite of what they do. It wants to save them. God showed his love toward all of us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every time the devil gets you to doubt God's love for you because you're blowing it, because you can't get victory over this thing, alcohol, drugs, cigarette, whatever, or some other thing that has you defeated. And the devil's right there to whisper in your ear, you're a failure, you're, he doesn't love you. How could he love a person like you? That, that is the devil talking and remember Romans 5, verse 8. God knew every sin you and I were ever going to commit before he redeemed us. He knew what he was getting him, himself into. Nothing we do takes him by surprise. It can grieve him, but can't surprise him. He knows everything and still called us to be his kids. So when we blow it now, you think you're, you're shocking God? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm sure you didn't expect that. No, that's not, I, I, I knew it was coming. Uh, but I love you. And, and, and come to me. Draw close to me so I can give you the grace and strength you need to, to stop doing that, whatever it is, right? Again, John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen, he loved them to the end. The word end there, he loved them to the end, in the Greek means to the last or utterly and completely, and I think there's elements of both in this word and why it was used. In other words, John is telling us that Jesus loved his disciples, and that would include all of us. We're all his disciples. But he loved his disciples completely, perfectly, unconditionally, listen, through everything in spite of their weaknesses and faults and failures. That's a very important point. Sometimes we think that God loves us because we're lovable. Most people think they are kind of lovable. God knows better. But we kind of think we're lovable, you know? And uh, that's not true. That's not true. Um, but let's look at the disciples for a minute. Now, here was a group of guys that would tax anyone's patience. In fact, there were a few times that Jesus was trying to communicate something, and they completely missed the point. And he got a little exasperated. I'm not saying he was angry. He was just a little exasperated that after all this time, they weren't getting it, right? Uh, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. It's, it's hypocrisy. <gasps> He's upset we didn't bring bread. Oh, why didn't you bring bread, Peter? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there were times when the Lord got a little frustrated. Okay, in his humanity, in his humanity, right? But um, he loved them anyways. He loved them in spite of their weaknesses and faults and failures. We're going to see that very clearly today, all right? Does God love me in spite of all my faults and failures and weaknesses? Of course he does. He knows our frame that it is but what? Dust. He, we put more um, stock in ourselves, if I could put it that way. And God does. God knows better. 
And it's only when we understand we're weak, as Paul said, then we're really strong. Because we're not drawing on our own strength, right? We're looking to him. But remember this the next time you think God is, you know, fed up with you because you keep blowing it. Because the devil is merciless. He's gonna ha- he'll tempt you to sin, and when he do- you do sin, he'll condemn you. But remember what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. He said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. Listen, he's trying to cover every base he can think of. Because there's always going to be something in the crowd. Oh, but you didn't mention this. See, that's my problem. So Paul's trying to cover everything. Okay, uh, and then just adds, nor any other created thing. Are you a created thing here this morning? I think we all qualify. Okay, then not even you shall be able to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's salvation, folks. You're not in Christ until you receive him as your Lord and Savior. Then miraculously, invisibly, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit places you in the body of Christ. You're members of the church. And God will never, ever throw you out of the family. He'll never say, get out of my sight. You belong to him. He knew what he was getting himself into. And he will embrace you for the rest of eternity and will love you unconditionally. So when we blow it, it's not that God condemns us. He's just allowing us to fall so we see how weak we are, that we can draw closer and closer to him. Because he loves us and knows he's the only one got the strength for us uh, to, to give to us that we can live the life he wants us to live, right? But we, with regard to love, God loving him, people say, well, you know, God's got to love me. He loves the world. Okay, well, that's a fair point, right? One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, there is a general sense in which God loves the world of lost sinners. Yes, John 3, 16, Matthew 5, 44 and 5. But he loves his own with a perfect, eternal, redeeming love a love which surpasses human comprehension, Ephesians 3, verse 19. Something else you might find interesting. When John says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end, the Greek word for end is telos, telos. This is the same Greek word that Jesus uttered from the cross. Just before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, he said, it is what? finished. A form of telos, telestai, okay? Telestai. But a form of that Greek word, telos. As we have pointed out many times, that phrase, it is finished, could also be translated paid in full. That's very important because that's the language of redemption. That is the language of redemption. And uh, as we, as we, John is telling us, I believe that Jesus loved us all the way to the cross. He loved us all the way to the cross. All the way to the completion of our redemption. Redemption, guys, is to release a person from slavery by paying a price. Now, of course, they were in slavery because the person themselves couldn't pay the price. The price was beyond what they had the resources to to give. So they stayed a slave unless a, a, a kinsman, a goel, the Hebrew is, a, a near kinsman, stepped forward and offered to pay the debt 
or this relative. Look, Jesus didn't just love us with words. He didn't just start the work of redemption on our behalf but then stop short and not finish what he started. Our Savior loved us completely, unconditionally, and demonstrated his great love for us by going to the cross and, listen, finishing the work he came to the earth to accomplish, and that was to redeem us with his own blood. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Very familiar passage on this topic. Of course, when Peter talks about how Jesus redeemed us, he's talking about how he redeemed us out of sin and death and, uh, and, and destruction and hell forever. That, that's what he redeemed us out of, of course. But 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not, listen, not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver. No, 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 no. This redemption would take, some, would take something far more precious than silver or gold. You weren't redeemed with these corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus died to finish the work necessary to redeem his bride and secure a place for her in heaven with him forever. Now, husbands, let me talk to you for a second. Because God's word says that you represent Jesus in your marriage. Jesus died for his bride, literally. The Bible teaches that we as husbands must die for our brides figuratively. Figuratively, right? Die to self is the idea. To finish the work to finish the work that we began on the day we said, I do. On the day we married our wives, we stood before family, right? And made a solemn vow, made a solemn promise. But realize you also stood before God Almighty primarily because marriage was not an invention of man. It was an invention of God. He ordained it. He created it. And the person that you married belongs to him. And so when you entered into marriage to this gal, you were making a solemn vow to God to you know, finish the work you had begun. That's why we say, look, you make a promise to her that you would be faithful to her in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, whether you felt like it at times or not, until death the end of your time on earth separated you from her. And women, this goes for you as well. Wives, goes for you as well. You both entered into a covenant. And the Bible says that our God is a covenant-keeping God. Very important that we understand that. God takes covenants very seriously. That's why at one point Jesus said, don't make vows. Don't enter into covenants. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's not saying it would be sinful or wrong to do it. But, you know, if you enter into a covenant, you're, you need to keep it. Because God will hold you accountable to keep that covenant. Check out Israel. 
when the um, Gibeonites uh, disguised themselves in the days of Joshua, right? Because Joshua and the armies of Israel were taking on all these different nations in the uh, promised land and defeating everybody. So the Gibeonites realized there's no way we can defeat this army. God's on their side. And so they disguised themselves as if they had come from a very long way, way outside of Canaan. And they put on the old ratty clothes and they had moldy bread in their knapsack and stale wine and their shoes were all worn out. And they said to Joshua, make a covenant with us. And Joshua said, well, how do I know you're not a near neighbor? Uh, Canaanite, oh no, look at us. And they, says Joshua took stock, uh, took a visual stock of them, but did not inquire of the Lord. Entered into this covenant. Then it came out that Joshua had been deceived. These were not the people they claimed to be. You think God said, oh, well, because they deceived you, the covenant doesn't stand. No, God says the covenant is still good. You could have prayed. You could have asked me. Husbands, wives, you could have prayed before you married this person. You know, and the, the idea is that, look, um, people say, well, they're not the right. They, I realize now they weren't the right one for me. Let me tell you this. When you said I do, they were. They became the right one. Okay. 400 years later, when Saul, king of Israel, decided to break the covenant and persecute the Gibeonites, God held Israel responsible and brought judgment on Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God. You make the covenant, you need to keep the covenant. You need to keep the covenant. Very important, guys. Very important. Both of you need to finish what you started, to love each other to the end, the end of your lives on earth. Let me give you three passages. You can read the whole chapter on your own. Ephesians 5, right? Ephesians, the classic passage on marriage in the New Testament. Ephesians 5. To the husband, God says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. The word is agape. Unconditionally. Cherish her. Provide for her. Protect her. Love her. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then he sums up everything he has just said in the last verse of chapter 5, verse 33. Nevertheless, husbands, let each of you in particular so love your wife. And the idea is sacrificial love as Christ, because you represent Christ, as Christ sacrificially gave himself for his bride, right? Husbands, so love your wives. Um, uh, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Guys, this is the work. Jesus said, I finished the work. This is our work in marriage. That Men, you love your wives, you cherish them, you take care of them, you provide for them, and you love them with all your heart. And wives, you need to respect your husbands. They're not always right. Uh, sometimes they don't even deserve your respect. But you respect the position. Because that's what God has ordained. That's what God has ordained. I, I know at this point, someone might say, but pastor, it's hard living with my spouse. You don't know what I go through. It would simply be easier if we gave up on this marriage and divorced. I hear that a lot. We are living in a culture that is encouraged, encouraging people to take the easy way out. Immediate gratification, right? Take the easy way out. All I can say is, thank God that our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, didn't feel like taking the easy way out when it came to dying for his bride. 
He didn't have to go to the cross. He could have said, Father, I've changed my mind. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to go through with this. He didn't take the easy way out. Because when it comes to marriage, there are no guarantees. That's what we say when we marry somebody, for better or for worse, sickness and health. Whatever comes your way, you're going to stand by each other's side. You're going to weather the storm together because that's what two people joined as one do. I was telling first service, I have two men, two husbands in this church whose wives have severe cases of MS. In fact, these ladies are so bad they can barely function at all on their own. Their husbands have to take care of them 24-7. I have never once heard any, either one of them complain. I have never once seen either one of them do, any, do anything but love that, those gals, take care of them, whatever they need. They are literally dying to self to put their wife in a place where they love them, cherish them, and so on. To me, as I look at these two men and how they treat their wives with such love and commitment, I'm humble. I am humble to, to recognize two men who stood before God and family and made a vow, to that entered into a vow to, to, to stay by this person's side regardless of what comes their way. And it wasn't just empty words. It was a living commitment a real vow, and, and may God bless them. And I know there's women, I've run into women over the years who have shown that kindness and all to husbands. I see on TV a lot of these poor guys coming home from war all blown up and busted up and missing limbs, and their gals are, are staying by their side. One guy said, my wife, he, he came home without any limbs. Uh, and his wife takes some piggyback up the stairs. Uh, each night to the bedroom, bathroom. Um, wow. I'm humble. But, but this is what we're talking about, right? Understand, nothing in life that is of great value is going to come easy. It's going to come easy. Not when it comes to the marriage, and certainly not when it comes to our redemption. Let me come at this from a little different angle for just a moment. If... I were to go out onto the streets just interviewing people at random. Most of them probably would be unbelievers, but I'm just out there. Of course, uh, I would ask them if they believed in God, you know, and, and, and so that would be the starting point. But uh, if I asked these folks, what do you think was the most spectacular thing God ever did? And of course, I am implying the most involved, therefore the most difficult thing he had ever done. What, do you, what would you say? I'm convinced most people would probably answer, well, the creation of the universe. And that would be understandable. When we talk about the enormity of the original creation of the physical universe. Scientists estimate that it could be as big as 18, uh, 12 to 18 billion light years in diameter, the physical universe. I mean, with its trillions of stars and planets and billions of galaxies, it is truly a spectacular thing to behold. But look, as spectacular as the creation of the physical universe was, do you realize that only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to the physical creation and the rest of the Bible 
to redemption. Think about that. The Bible tells us that creation, as vast as it is, was only the work of God's finger. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the physical universe, the moon and stars you have set in place, you can read the rest. So the Bible tells us that as vast as the physical universe is, that God created, it was only finger work. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says, listen, he bared his arms. We would say he rolled up his sleeves. The work of redemption, or as Paul the Apostle put it, the new creation, was far more involved and from a human standpoint far more difficult to accomplish than was the creation of the physical universe. In the original creation, think about it. In the original creation of the universe, all God had to do was speak, and everything came into existence. But when it came to, re to the redemption of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human form, had to die. God could not speak sin away. He could create as many galaxies as he wanted to with a simple word. But the one thing God couldn't do was to speak away sin. Sin had to be paid for. And it couldn't be brushed under the rug where God pretended it didn't exist. I mean, God's word is very clear in this point. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9.22. Under the old covenant, of course, you understand that God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals could be substituted for the guilty person to atone for their sins. The, Greek, the Hebrew, word, excuse me, Hebrew word is kafar, which means to cover. Under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls could temporarily cover a person's sins, never take the sin away. They knew that because every time they sinned, they had to bring another animal, right? But it could temporarily cover their sins so they could have fellowship with God. The only stipulation that God commanded with regard to the animal sacrifices uh, offered to him was that they had to be without spot and without blemish. In other words, they had to be perfect. The redemption of a human soul involved a price that no human being could pay. My favorite verse on this subject comes out of Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8 which reads, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him or her, for the redemption of their souls is costly. The redemption of a human soul is so costly that no amount of money can purchase it. Peter said it, right? Not silver or gold. It re requires a blood payment. Life for life, and not just any life for the life of a sinner. Sinners can't die for sinners. It had to be the innocent dying for the guilty. It had to take it would take innocent life being sacrificed for the guilty. In other words, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. Perfect sacrifice. Of course, all this pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was without spot and blemish. In other words, he was born sinless and never sinned during his entire life on the earth and whose precious blood removed the stain of our sin completely and 
forever. Again, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, but also 1 John 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The only ransom God would accept for the redemption of fallen sinners is the blood of His Son. Again, the innocent dying for the guilty. And so Jesus came to earth out of His great love for the human race, yes. But in particular, out of His great love for those who were His own. What does that mean? For those who would receive Him as Lord and Savior and become part of His bride. He loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to completion of redemption. He, he loved them all the way until the work was finished. Turn back to John 13. Again, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended. It seems like the correct translation is uh, the, the supper, uh, that during supper, or the supper being in progress. Seems like every other version except for the King James, New King James, uh, has it translated along those lines. I checked every version I have on my database, and they all had something to the effect during supper or while supper was in progress. That's the idea. I think it has to be the correct one. It wasn't after dinner. Uh, it was while dinner was in progress. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let me stop there. I think at this point we need to fill in some of the detail by looking at Luke chapter 22, if you turn there. Just to fill in a little of the detail. Luke 22, starting with verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He was one of the apostles. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude when people weren't around. Back to John 13, verse 2, at the end there. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which with which he was girded. Uh, the question that immediately springs to mind is, why would Jesus stop in the middle of this last supper with his disciples and start washing their feet? And the answer to that lies in two separate issues that happened to converge that night in the upper room during the Passover meal. First of all, Luke records in his gospel, chapter 22, verse 24, that during the meal that night, at one point, the disciples began to argue among themselves 
as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. If that wasn't enough to make you sick, Luke also tells us that this argument broke out right after Jesus had just said that one of them would betray him. So here we are less than 15 hours from the cross. The events of the next day were already weighing heavily upon Jesus. He would be soon kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane in prayer, pouring his heart out to the Father in agony of soul, so much so that the pressure and anxiety and the stress of the cross was pressing down on him so greatly and so heavily that he would soon, heavily that he would soon begin to sweat great drops of blood. And here... These guys are completely blind and indifferent to what he's going through. Remember I said earlier they weren't easy to love? But he loved them anyways. Here's one example of that. I mean, talk about carnal and selfish. These guys could have written a book on it. I mean, his needs were the farthest thing from their minds, and yet their needs were never far from his mind. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had taught them about greatness in God's kingdom. Let me just read it to you. It comes out of Matthew 20, verses 26 to 28. He said to his disciples, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him become your slave. Uh, let him be, I'm so, sorry, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is where the principle of greatness in God's kingdom intersects with true humility and servanthood. You see, let me explain to you this way. In that part of the world, and no doubt every part of the world, but in that part of the world at that time, people mostly traveled by foot. And almost all the roads and walkways were dirt. Unless it had rained, then they were mud. And since there were no Reeboks or Nikes back then, pretty much your only choice of footwear were open-toed open sandals. Uh, that was about all you were left with, okay? Um, so everywhere you walk, you're walking on dirty, dusty, muddy roads with open-toed sandals, which meant your feet got pretty dirty. And so it was customary that every Jewish home had a pitcher of water, a basin, and a towel near the front door. This was not only, it was not only customary, it was a courtesy for all visitors that entered your home. So it was your home back then. Whenever a person entered your home back then, one of your servants would immediately come and wash their feet as a courtesy and as an act of hospitality, especially if you're going to be reclining at a table with them to eat a meal together. We'll talk about that more next week, okay? If you're too poor to have a servant to wash your guest's feet, it became the responsibility of the host to then wash the, his guest's feet. I want you to understand, though, the very important. I want you to understand the washing of another's feet in that culture was considered to be the lowliest and most menial task a servant could perform. It was usually reserved for the youngest slave in the household, all right? It was so degrading, so humiliating. Why? 
Because in Jewish culture, they believed the foot was the dirtiest part of the body. Why? Because it was the part that came in contact with the world. And that's how they looked at it. And so they gave it the job of washing feet to the lowliest, most insignificant slave in the family. But again, if there was no slave, you were too poor, became the responsibility of the host to wash his guest's feet. It was an act that required true humility. True humility. Now when the disciples entered the upper room to eat the Passover meal, there was no servant present. Certainly the owner of the room, the upper room, where Jesus had secured this room for his disciples and him to eat the Passover, had furnished it. He made it ready. And one of the things he did was include a pitcher of water, a basin, and a towel. That was customary, right? When the disciples entered the upper room to eat the Passover meal, there was no servant present. The proper thing would have been for one of Jesus' disciples to have offered to wash the other's feet. Or at very least, for them to take turns washing each other's feet. Now that would have been the proper thing to do. That would have shown real growth on the part of the disciples if one of them had said, I'll do it. Jesus, you have been teaching us about humility. I want to walk in humility. I want to do it. That wasn't the case, okay? I mean, it would have been the proper thing to do, but not likely to happen if the disciples were arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus, as the host, seeing what's going on, and just listening, and I'm convinced the Lord was just sitting there, taking all this in, listening to these men argue among themselves, and the argument probably got a little heated. Who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? Jesus just sat there listening for a while, and then he quietly at one point stood up, took off his outer robe and tunic, tied a towel around his waist like an apron. This is how the lowly servant would have been dressed who would come to wash dirty feet. After girding himself with a towel like an apron, poured some water into a basin, knelt down, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Have you ever imagined in your mind's eye what took place at that moment? I have. I'm not saying it's accurate. Here's what I think probably happened. Suddenly, all the arguing and yelling about who's going to be greatest stopped. You could have heard a pin drop. I think the first thing that happened was the disciples' faces became flushed with embarrassment. You probably had 12 of the most red-faced guys you would ever have seen. I believe then what could have happened is some of them may have begun to weep, overcome with sorrow and conviction at what was taking place. You have to understand something. Every man in that room believed Jesus was the King of Israel. Every single one of them. They didn't doubt it for a second. In fact, they were arguing who was going to be the greatest in his administration when he took the throne. Every one of those men believed Jesus was king. And here's their king, girding himself with a towel, stooping down to wash their dirty feet. 
This was too much for Peter. When the Lord got to him, Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. What did Peter say? We love Peter, don't we? I'll take a bath. But when Peter protested, it led to a very powerful back and forth between Jesus and Peter that is extremely important that we understand. In fact, it's so important that we'll have to save it for next week. It's just, it's just too much. And we are not going to rush through it. The back and forth between Jesus and Peter, and it was not a heated thing at all, it was a humble thing uh, involved. But as Jesus speaks, he reveals some things that we must know, we must understand. Okay, And God willing, we will explore that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. The entirety of your word is truth. All of it. And Lord, thank you that you have placed it, or you have given each of us a copy of your word, that we can read it and study it and be blessed through it. And Lord, we just pray that you would give grace to all of us to be your servants by dying to us, ourselves, to live for you. And Lord, we just give you this study in John's Gospel. We pray that you would continue to bless it as we go forward. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.